and welcome to a very special episode 49 of the Cultural Capital Podcast. I'm Andy Hazel and this will be a shorter episode and as you might have noticed a later episode than usual because the Cult Cap is coming to you live from the Cannes Film Festival. You might be able to get red carpet glamour and opinions about films elsewhere but only Cultural Capital is going to bring all that plus an interview with Australia's only awards contender at this year's festival, Charles Williams, whose film All These Creatures is competing for the short film Palm Door. But before we hear from Charles, you might be able to hear the sounds of La Croisette in the background there. Um, I'm going to run through some of the highlights of the Cannes Film Festival so far and give you some idea of what it's like being here. Hello, this is Ron Stallworth calling. Well, who am I speaking with? This is David Duke. Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. That David Duke? God. Last time I checked. What can I do you for? Well, since you asked, I hate blacks. I hate Jews, Mexicans, and Irish, Italians, and Chinese. But my mouth to God's ears, I really hate those black rats. And anyone else, really, that doesn't have pure white Aryan blood running through their veins. I'm happy to be talking to a true white American. God bless white America. So, one of the films that garnered a lot of attention is Black Klansman, Spike Lee's first can appearance since 1991's Jungle Fever. Lee's 22nd feature film, can't believe that, 22, is based on a true story of Colorado Springs policeman Ron Stolworth's evolution from the city's first ever African-American policeman to being an undercover detective who became a KKK member and eventual head of his local chapter. To tell this incredible story, Lee uses a combination of sourced footage, opening with a scene from Gone with the Wind, and then moving to a manic Alec Baldwin playing a KKK recruiter in a fiery video, before centering on John David Washington, that's um, Denzel's son, John David Washington's Ron Stalworth and his attempts to be a good policeman amidst this culture of racism in the police force. So this is set in the late 1970s, which of course gives Spike Lee opportunity to use a lot of imagery from black exploitation films and have a killer soundtrack. There's a hatred of the police force among Ron Stalworth and his friends, uh, most notably Patrice, who's portrayed by Laura Harris, who some of you might have seen in the last Spider-Man film. Um, And she portrays a black student union leader at Colorado State University who invites African-American activist Stokely Carmichael to speak. Ron is asked to go undercover at this event to gather intelligence, and he gets caught up with a lot of the rhetoric and then starts having his own personal dilemmas between what he should be feeling and doing as a black African-American and the work he really wants to do with the police. He falls for Patrice, they start dating, and then he applies to become a full card-carrying member of the KKK, which he does through his... um, switching places when it comes to face-to-face meetings with Adam Driver's uh, co-policeman. Patrice is, a, is based on Angela Davis, another female activist, and uh, she is actually a really, really interesting character and somebody who I think um, could have actually had some more screen time. So the story itself is pretty compelling, how Adam Driver's character and uh, John David Washington's managed to infiltrate the KKK. You can imagine with Spike Lee at the helm how that's going to turn out. Uh, Ideal is, is pretty compelling, but um, Lee's just kind of incapable of letting this, trusting the story enough in itself, in my opinion. Um, he uses a lot of the black exploitation imagery. He uses news footage. He uses imagery uh, from Charlottesville and Trump to kind of make it updated. And when I interviewed him, um, which is an embargoed interview that we'll use on the podcast when the embargo is lifted um, in early August, uh, he was explaining how he thought that it needed to be shown, that connection needed to be made, that audiences wouldn't make that connection themselves, and I thought that was kind of underestimating audiences' capacity to look at a story about an African-American in the KKK and not make comparisons to racist America. But the audience loved it. I mean, I was there at the gala screening. They absolutely lost it whenever there was a mention of a line like, we need to make this country greater, 
and the use of the phrase America first, which of course has been used for you know, a century. It wasn't invented with Trump. But people seem to love this. I mean, this it can here, you know, they did give the palm door to Fahrenheit 9-11, so they love a bit of obvious political um, swagger, I think, and anything anti-Trump is going to be carrying a lot of water here. It wasn't quite worth its 128-minute runtime, but it is uh, across the board. The performance is really strong, and Lee clearly made the film that he set out to make. The KKK is planning an attack. How do you propose to make this investigation? We'll establish contact over the phone. We'll need a white officer to play me when they meet face-to-face. You for the white race, Ron? Oh, hell yeah. So there becomes a combined Ron Stallworth. Can you do that? With the right white man, we can do anything. So Cannes is not like anywhere else I've been. I'll just give you a bit of an idea of what it's like to be here and the sort of environment that we're watching these films in. Because often people come away from Cannes or you read reviews from, of films here and they're very, very, very much influenced by the conditions under which you watch them. So first of all, you're surrounded by obscene amounts of wealth. Um, there's million dollar yachts and boats lined up along the harbour side next to the Palais des Festivals, which is pretty much uh, houses all the screens that you will see the films on. I had no idea becoming here that the film, this is a film festival that takes place essentially in one building. The cinemas themselves are kind of immaculate. It's like no, every time you walk in, it's like nobody's ever walked into them before because the seats are incredible. Food is banned, so you, you will have your baguette taken off you at the airport-style scanner security at the front gate, which happened to me. Um, but that's great because the cinemas are kind of immaculate. Um, the sound system is unbelievable. The screen's perfect. And there are no ads, and the only thing that shows before a film is a little animation of some stairs leading up from the bottom of the sea into the sky and then at the end of the stairs you get a palm frond and the words Cannes Festival and everybody applauds, which I found hilarious. Even the critics, you know, screening at 10pm when everyone's exhausted on their fifth film of the day, people are still applauding this little um, JPEG, which I thought was hilarious. Anyway, um, there's also, of course, Cannes rules about about how you can watch their films. So gala screenings involve red carpet, they'll have to, which means all men must be wearing tuxedos or women must be in heels. Selfies are, of course, banned. Um, there's still a 36-month window between cinema release and screening, which means that Netflix and Amazon titles or funded titles are pretty much um, unable to play here. There are negotiations currently happening around this, and so I'd expect by 2019 that that 36-month window won't be around anymore. Um, also, they, they kind of just... The whole thing is, is a humongous multi-multi-million dollar indulgence to auto-directors, which is kind of amazing if you're into cinema. And so when I was walking into the Big Garns film, Long Day's Journey Into the Night, we were handed 3D glasses, which is not something I was expecting, but it's part of his vision and it's how he would like people to see his film. So this film, Long Day's Journey Into the Night, uh, has been getting a lot of attention um, from the viewers here and it's one of the ones that I would expect you're going to be able to see before the end of the year either at the Sydney Film Festival or the Melbourne Film Festival. So I kind of struggled with this, so let me break it down. So it's not an adaptation of Celine's novel. Um, it's described as a man returning to his hometown of Kali, this Chinese town, and trying to track down a woman he fell in love with 20 years ago and uncover the circumstances around the deaths of his friend Wildcat. So in reality, this is more of like a vehicle uh, or a setup for B. Gunn to play around with memory, um, dreams, shifting identities, an extremely slow narrative, beautiful, richly hued visions of urban decay, and um, lots of scenes of Luo, Luo, who is the man who's searching for something in his memory that seems to straddle the line between reality and creative fiction and dream. Um, so there's a very sonorous narrative going on, um, and after 75 minutes of this, uh, he sits, goes into a cinema and sits down and puts on a pair of 3D glasses, which is our cue to put them on as well. 
Uh, and at this point, we kind of treated to what seems like one single 55-minute take of a dream in which Leo, Leo ventures into his memories, finds Wildcat and the woman he's searching for, and it's all done in this tableau of walking through decaying cities, through up long flights of stairs, down zip lines. It's just phenomenal. It's absolutely masterful use of cinema it just blew me away but honestly I was so close to sleep as I am with the films of Wong Kar Wai who I also really like and this is no slight on the film itself this is my problem um, that I was blinking so much that I didn't even realise this was a single take until I was reading about it afterwards and I was like holy crap he's right it was too this is why it was taking so long for him to get anywhere because he was just walking anyway um, this is my own fallibility as a reviewer and so when I think about it, the more I think about it and the more I dissociate it from the re reading the reviews, the more I'm like, this is really something challenging and this is something I probably need to see again, preferably after lots of coffee. Um, the timing of some of these scenes in the 55-minute take are just crazy and actually why, partly why it never occurred to me that it was actually a single take. There's fight scenes, you know, the 30, 40 minutes into this thing. It's just remarkable. So if you have the patience and would like to challenge yourself, I highly recommend seeing Long Day's Journey into the Night. Who moves out in the middle of the night? Nothing strange about it. She wanted to leave. How does that not make sense? I don't understand why she didn't tell me. Maybe she didn't like you. Maybe she knows you're poor and haven't paid your rent. I found some kind of code or like secret message in her apartment. It means to stay quiet. Our world is filled with codes, subliminal messages from Silver Lake to the Hollywood Hills. Could any of this be connected to Sarah? I know this girl. There's a message in the music. So as well as getting a roundtable interview with Spike Lee and Adam Driver and Laura Harris and John David Washington, someone else I was lucky enough to chat to was under the Silver Lake's director, David Robert Mitchell. Um, he made The Myth of the American Sleepover and It Follows, both of which screened at MIFF and probably Sydney Film Festival too. And both of those films showed that he could match style and substance and he was a really big fan of mining nostalgia and very specific strains of nostalgia for effect and he's done it all over again here in Under the Silver Lake. So this film begins with Andrew Garfield's idol Los Angelian Sam, who is acting like a voyeur out of his window with his binoculars on the swimming pool that he shares with his neighbours. He spies on an older woman who walks around topless and Riley Keough's Sarah, who is swimming in the pool. They quickly start up a brief romance, which is cut short by the arrival of her housemates. And the next morning, she's completely vanished and the house is empty. And the rest of the film's two-hour, 17-minute runtime is taken up with Sam's search for Sarah, which involves crisscrossing a number of LA locations, getting invites or just walking into exclusive parties, parties on the tops of hotels, gigs at the Crypt Club, um, and then a lot of codes and ciphers and deconstruction of modern pop culture. Um, so as Mitchell said when I talked to him, he was explained that it's about looking at objects from your childhood and realising there's much more to them than you thought. So if your childhood involved Nintendo games, VHS movies, Nirvana, and noir films, then there are a lot of precarious thrills to be had here. But if it doesn't, then uh, you might find less to love about it. And the reaction does seem to be split largely by age. I was overhearing some critics here, both of whom are a lot older than me, and they were hated it. They thought it was a complete waste of time, that it was sub-sub-sub David Lynch. He wasn't even worthy of being a cold film, and they couldn't understand why it was in competition. Um, I myself found it quite exciting. Um, I really thought that it earned the sprawling runtime. I liked his visions. I liked there was a, couple, a few scenes that I won't spoil that were really, really arresting. It could be a bit shorter. I love some of the ideas that he was playing with. I don't think it entirely holds together. Um, 
critics, there's been quite a lot of criticism of the way women are portrayed in this film and the way Riley Keough has been underused. And I think those do hold water. I think there are problems that don't sufficiently investigate, um, that aren't sufficiently investigated by Mitchell. But I think overall, there's definitely a story in the style of inherent vice. Or not, I wouldn't go as far as to say Mulholland Drive or David Lynch. I didn't see anything Lynchian about this film, really. I thought there was a lot of great ideas, but I wouldn't put it up there quite yet, although I'm a big fan of his style. Anyway, you'll hear much more about that um, in an interview that you'll hear on Cold Cap later this year or next year, depending when the film comes out. Overall, though, there was a fair bit of controversy about that, but nothing really touched the controversy of Lars von Trier and his out-of-competition film, The House That Jack Built. Your house is a fine little house, Jack. Are you allowed to speak along the way? I was thinking there might be rules. Let me put it this way. Very few make it all the way without uttering a word. But do carry on merrily. Just don't believe you're going to tell me something I haven't heard before. I think it's completely over, overblown. Um, there was talk of, oh my God, 100 people walked out of this gala screening, but that's in a 2,500 seat cinema, and I don't think that was really worthy of attention. 100 people walked out of Ashes, the purest white, and I don't think that's going to make the news. Um, the film itself involves Matt Dillon playing Jack, who is a serial killer, and we get a guided tour of some of his greatest murders in his career. Uh, and when I say we kind of see them, it's more that we are broken down into fastidious analytical detail women are just repeatedly subjected to obscene amounts of violence and trauma and torture. And while all that stuff, you know, was the reason that people left the cinema and is the, probably a reason a lot of people are going to boycott this film, it is in a weird way, and I know this sounds horrible, it's kind of like his most entertaining and fun outside of those scenes. It's done in, with a kind of lightness that I'd kind of forgotten that he'd been able to do. But what it all serves, the point of this whole film, really is going to depend a lot on what you feel about Von Trier already. So if you're already a fan, you're already curious, and you're a fan of um, Melancholia and Nymphomaniac and more of his recent films, you probably will get a lot out of this. You probably will be, OK, this is his black sense of humour. It's him looking at his own obsession with degrading women and violence and why we're attracted to it. But it's, it's funny games kind of did that already, so I don't really know what there is to get from this unless you are a fan already. Um, I kind of miss the catharsis you can get out of films like Melancholia and um, some of his other ones and I didn't really feel much of that catharsis here At first we thought they came from this pool he tried to build in the backyard that had become a home for these different creatures It was like they'd come and given him these strange ideas and Set up these booby traps inside him. And you didn't know when they were going to go off. That was a trailer for the Melbourne set short film All These Creatures, and here's an interview that I did earlier today with its writer and director, Charles Williams. So for the listeners who haven't had a chance to see your film yet, most likely, could you please like, give a synopsis about what All the Creatures is about? Um, All These Creatures follows uh, Tempest, who is uh, looking back on his teenage years, his early adolescence, and he's trying to understand who his father was, whether he was a sick person or a bad person, and he's trying to sift through these memories that led to uh, uh, tragedy, and he's... He's trying to separate his kind of myths and his childlike version of events with a more mature understanding of the world. And, and I think thematically it's sort of how we all try and grow up and see our parents as actual people rather than as these myths that 
are huge in our heads. Um, and especially if you have a parent that's really destructive or violent, um, you know, that's a, you know, it doesn't mean that at the end you go, oh, this person is great now and we're all forgiven. But it does, it's important for, I think, for people to try and find some compassion or at least try to see the full human being. Um, and that's a really difficult process. Right. So what was important to you about this story and why was it important at this point in history, like 2017, 2018? I don't know about history, just what came out of me. Um, I was really, really wanted to do a film that meant something to me. And I think, I think having a one-year-old girl, or just a little girl, maybe fed into that. I thought she's going to have to watch this and you know that extra pressure. Because it's one thing to say, to make a film and then go, oh, look, you know, we had these these problems or we couldn't quite get this right. I was very aware that those excuses will not hold water when she's grown up. So there was that feeding into it. And the film is just so, so much about my own obsessions um, my whole life. Not just now, but I've always been thinking about these things, about, you know, where do you draw the line between a difficult personality and an illness and how... Um, you know, how much control do we have over the people we become? Um, it's just something I've always thought about. I, I continue to think about. Um, you know, my bro uh, my one of my siblings, the week that I found out I got into Cannes, I've actually mentioned this before, but I'll, I think I can. The, the week I found out I got into Cannes, I was overwhelmed with how great that is. I also found out one of my siblings is going back to jail. And it, it, it was a moment that made me think about the film again and how you know, what this person has done to me and other people, you know, they do need to go to jail. But, um, you know, do you, do you hate somebody for that? Do you want revenge on them for that? Or is it more about just trying to quarantine their, so they don't hurt other people? There's some sort of um, thing like that that fed into my, my point of view on the film. I right. hope that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, so was it, was it influenced at all by, about, um, by Akon Guare? the Ethiopian woman who drove her family into a... No, but that's a good question because I did read about that story. Yeah. And I think it's important to say that the film is not at all um, conceived as an Ethiopian-Australian story. Uh, I wrote the film and I knew the most important thing was finding this pre-adolescent person who was going to be able to hold the screen for the movie without doing much at all, mostly thinking. And you couldn't really direct that a lot out of somebody. You can to an extent, but there needs to be this innate presence of maturity and innocence. And to like limit that with, oh, we need like this blonde haired boy that's this, it just made no, it's silly. You know, in casting, they always ask you what the person looks like and it, it's frequently the least important thing. So I left the uh, gender and race open of the lead character, lead role, which is surprising that it doesn't happen more often. Yeah. yeah. Um, because that didn't really matter. I knew I could rewrite the story around it. If it was a girl and a father or a girl and a mother, I thought, if I get the dynamic right, I can rewrite the story. Um, and when I found, I went through 400 kids in the last few that I had. I had a boy from Scotland, a girl with Zimbabwe, Zimbabwean parents that lives, yeah, well, I won't say where she lives, she lives in the country. And, uh, and I found Yared anyway, and um, he was clearly the, the right choice. Uh, and then I went about, you know, casting the family. I brought on four Ethiopian Australian advisors from the local community to make sure I was not trampling on anything. And, and honestly, um, two or three of them had said to me, they, not, they just assumed the script was written specifically yeah. about Ethiopian Australians. Um, they really, like, they were in disbelief that it was not about Ethiopian Australians. 
it kind of made me connect with how if you go really personal, it's universal. But I also think maybe on the other hand, like I kind of grew up sort of a lot of on the fringes, very low socioeconomic. And I think when you don't feel like you're part of the mainstream, which maybe some other races do in Australia, there's some connective tissue around issues um, that you hide. Yeah, but that was amazing. And then I did, you know, they helped and I did rewrite mostly just the um, background and the incidents and not so much the fundamentals of the story, um, just the behaviour. And, and then put a tremendous amount of work in um, in terms of writing big backstories with the characters and all, and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. Because it does make, watching the film makes me feel, particularly being here at Cannes and seeing a lot of two to two and a half to three hour movies, how much you managed to condense into 13 minutes, I think. Yeah, it's 13. It's phenomenal, yeah. So it turned out exactly as you imagined it, like on screen? Um, I have to say, yeah. I mean, I I I don't know, like it evolves as you're making it, but it it, it definitely, I, I feel very proud of the film. And I don't know that I've really felt totally proud of a film before. I've had films that have done, like, had decent success or you know shortlisted for the Oscars and you know a trop fest or whatever I've never been really happy Um, and yeah it's the first time I've I've done a film and I feel I just feel really I feel good about it Um, yeah it feels nice to I mean I just wouldn't let anything go like whatever it was I was like no that's that's the car door sound and you know you've got to fix that car door sound and I don't think I was like it wasn't I was not a painful person to work with, I hope. Um, the people that worked on the film, we all worked fine. Um, but the composer and, and the editor, Dan, with me, um, were definitely people who had the same... It, it didn't feel like I was dragging them. You usually are dragging them, obviously. It's a short film, people have got lives, and they're not being paid. But there were people that, along the way, I think, had the same dedication as me. And Kiara, the composer, did a hundred drafts of the music. Right. Um, and Dan worked with me for three months on the edit. And, you know, really. So, so those kinds of people you really need. Screenings of all these creatures are yet to be announced, but you will have a chance to see it later this year, Charles told me, and I wouldn't be surprised if it turns up at Acme or somewhere like that. So I'm recording this on the last day of the festival, and as I um, talk to you now, the winners are yet to be announced, but I've made a short list of films that you might be able to catch at the Sydney or Melbourne Film Festivals or sometime later in the year. So the standouts for me um, are the Japanese film, Asoko 1 and 2. Um, so this is a romantic drama that has is ostensibly about a woman called Asoko who falls in love with a boy called Baku in the opening few minutes of the film in a kind of hilarious and very sweet courtship. Uh, Baku and his, has a best friend who's extremely physically comedic and absolutely hilarious, to be honest, um, in the few scenes that he gets. Um, and Asoku has a best friend as well. The four of them all hang out together. But then one day Baku just completely disappears and there's no explanation given. And then two years later, Asoku is living in Osaka and she ends up working next to him or somebody who looks exactly like him. It has one of the best opening thirds of any film I've seen in recent memory. It's this, this courtship um, involves visit, visiting a photographic exhibition called Self and Other. There are some daytime fireworks, there's almost no dialogue, and then there's some, this amazing physical comedy and a whirlwind romance. 
then then it kind of moves, it shifts tone, it shifts style, uh, and it becomes a bit more of a romantic drama than a comedy. Um, there's a insight into Japanese society, which I found really, really interesting, particularly now in 2018 when it's facing a lot of uh, economic difficulties. There's a lot of questions about the social mores that have been constructing the society for a very, very long time. Um, and it's really interesting how these kind of play into this romance story. Uh, I would totally recommend it, seeing it. Um, the soundtrack is fantastic. Uh, it's just a very unusual film. It's the very first romantic comedy or romantic drama I've seen that actually didn't feel predictable. It couldn't, you couldn't work out how the two were going to get together at the end or if they did or if they didn't. It was, it's, it was just very engaging. I'm surprised the reviews haven't been stronger for this one, actually. Um, another film I recommend that I'll probably talk about more at a later date is uh, Lee Chang-dong's Burning which is one of the best-reviewed films in the history of Cannes at the moment, as I'm saying this, although that may change. Um, it was a bit too long, as a lot of these films are. I mean, the average runtime for these films is over two hours, so I think maybe some of them might get cut down before they get a cinema release, but maybe not, because Cannes does not mind indulging people with long runtimes. Um, it is an amazing love story about um, based on a Haruki, Murak uh, Haruki Murakami short story. Um, about a uh, Korean guy who lives outside Seoul and um, he meets a girl who claims to have gone, lived in the same neighbourhood as him growing up. They fall in love. She goes on a holiday by herself to Africa and comes back with another guy called Ben who's a really rich, quite young Korean. And they end up, rather than replacing her boyfriend, she um, ends up becoming, they all three of them become friends and have a very strange, tense relationship. Um, that's a fascinating film and it has one of the most amazing scenes I've seen in a long, long time. And a lot of people talked about this scene, which involves a woman dancing to some jazz. That, that, I'll leave it there. <laughs> um, another film that really stood out to me was um, Hiro, Hiro Karita, um, Hirokazu Karita's Shoplifters, which is a film about a family that may or may not actually be a blood-related family living in on the fringes of society in uh, Japan as well. Um, this film, I would not be surprised if it wins awards. It, is so beautiful, so heartfelt, um, and so meticulously put together and effortlessly moving in a way that uh, I thought was was really, really striking. Um, it's also got extremely strong reviews. And if anybody saw his 2006 film, Nobody Knows, you're going to have a fair idea of what to expect because it's pretty similar. Both films open with a f shot of a child looking at a shop. And this time, that child is casing the joint, looking for ways to steal stuff with his dad or father figure. Um, how a family is constructed, how much nature and nurture plays a part, uh, how you can bring people into that family, how these relationships are built, is really the kind of the crux of it. It's beautifully explored. Um, and one interesting thing I noted was that there was a lot of scenes of the families eating together, and every time they ate, they were eating as Japanese people do by slurping noodles, showing appreciation, slurping a lot, and it's disgusted the French audience, which I found hilarious. Finally, my favourite film of the year so far, and at this festival, is um, Nadine Labaki's Kapahanam. And this does not look like a film that is worth getting excited about at all from the outset, because the poster shows two dirty young boys sitting on a step and the tagline is, why do you want to sue your parents for giving me life? So oh, I was kind of like, oh, do I really want to see this? Um, but it was playing at the right time and I had two and a half hours to kill, so I thought, okay. But within the opening minutes, this film is charged with a way, in a way that is, seems to be missing from so many stories that explore the lives of kids in oppressive circumstances. So the storyline is Zane is 12 years old and 
we learn about the first ten minutes, you can hate him. He's extremely annoying. He swears a lot. He's violent. He's in court for stabbing somebody. Um, he manufactures drugs by hustling uh, these painkiller medication off chemists, crushing them up into water, washing clothes in them, drying the clothes and giving the clothes to prisoners and then they can wash them again and get the drugs out. It seems to be the way that this uh, particular hustle works. And it's not until 15 minutes into the film, by which time you're going, do I really want to spend this much time with this kid, um, that you actually see him soften. And the reason he softens is because he's talking to his younger sister, Sarah. Sorry, Sahar. Um, and soon it's revealed that despite their pleas, uh, and Sahar, sorry, so Sahara's just started menstruating, and within a few weeks of this happening, she is sold as a child bride to the son of the landlord. And this sounds really depressing, and it kind of is, and there is a lot of scenes of children in distress, so avoid this film if that's not something that you can handle. Um, Zayn fights, rebels, then runs away to a nearby city where he falls in with an Ethiopian cleaner called Rahal and begins caring for her infant son, Jonas. But one day Rahal does not come home, and presumed that she's a uh, illegal immigrant, illegally working there. And so Zane is forced to care for Jonas, and this kind of unlikely friendship begins between the two ch- children. Um, so Capanum is like the name of the film, and it's very difficult. I find it a really annoying name. It's the name of a biblical uh, town in which Jesus cur- cursed by saying it would be damned to Hades for their lack of faith because there weren't enough people believing his word there. And there were a lot of people who uh, embrace the social traditions of their religions, but they don't really act in a way that is fitting, I suppose. So even this film, children are in poverty, they're oppressed, they're um, imprisoned, they're on trial, they are enslaved in some cases. And this film has a cast of hundreds, but it is so, so powerful, so beautifully put together. I was, my jaw was just kind of open the entire time. I, I usually cry at these sorts of films, but I wasn't in this one because I was just so blown away by the performances, by the audacity to tell this story, by the scale of it. Um, it's not like a shaky cam neo-realist a story like we there were a few examples of that in this year's competition and this is definitely not one of them um it's yeah it's just it's just stunning it's difficult to say without giving too much more of the film away but anyway it's definitely better than the poster and the tagline would make you believe and it's my film of the festival but overall i haven't really been disappointed by much um there's always been something wonderful in almost all of these films um yeah i think there's lots to like in this year's slate And you'll be hearing more about other things that I saw later in the year on different cultural capital episodes. Being attractive doesn't preclude being intelligent. Um, uh, I know I think that this is, by its very nature, a glamorous, fantastic, spectacular festival full of joie de vivre, you know, full of great good humour, um, uh, full of discord and disharmony. Making art, making work is not always going to be harmonious. And, when, you know, we're not always going to be in concord and agreement. It, the, the world would be terribly boring if it, if it, if it was. But, you know, um, I, I think that those, those aspects of the festival are, are things to be enjoyed but, you know, in an equal, fair and equitable way. So that brings us to the end of uh, this particular Cannes Film Festival cultural capital episode. Thank you very much for listening. Um, I really appreciate it. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode with Anders and Eloise, who um, I sadly missed, of course, because they were not here at Cannes. And... I very much look forward to hearing any feedback that you might have. Um, you can get into con- contact with us on Twitter via the Cop Pod, at Facebook at Cultural Capital Podcast, or you can just contact me directly at Andy Ricky.
Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.